Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit, Hail Mary, Mary full, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this all-new episode, Bishop Rhodes talks about his recently released pastoral letter, as well as St. Therese of Lisieux, and answers questions submitted by listeners. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and a week ago you released a pastoral letter. Bishop, can you explain what that is and why you wanted to release that at this time? Yes, um, this is a means by which bishops can can uh, communicate with the faithful, writing a letter to all the people of the diocese. Mm-hmm. And usually bishops will do that when there's an important matter or something that they want to reflect on with the people. So, of course, it's been in my heart for several weeks to write about the clergy sex abuse scandal and the crisis that we've been facing in the church. So that's what the letter is about. It was a letter that I wrote in prayer, thinking about what's happened the past two months almost, and really how this has affected all of us. I think, you know, just speaking for myself, but also for the priests, and I know deacons and religious and and certainly the laity, how we've been so hurt, I'd say, frustrated, maybe angry, a lot of pain about this issue, about this that there have been all these priests who have uh, sexually abused minors, Mm -hmm. a terrible sin and crime. So, and it's a wound in the body of Christ. It's a a deep wound in the church, Uh, innocent children and young people. And then I focus in the letter also on what is most important to focus on are the victims, the victim survivors. Mm -hmm. Because I think, especially years ago, they didn't realize how much harm this did. Often lifelong suffering. But through the years I've met with victims and it's really broken my heart to see what happened to them and and how it's hurt them spiritually, physically maybe, certainly psychologically, emotionally. 
we got to rid the church of this evil. I think the present crisis, of course, was provoked by, by two main things. The Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, where we read about six dioceses in Pennsylvania, where there were 300 priests who abused over 1,000 children. Mm-hmm. That was startling. And people, you know, have been outraged by this. But then the other thing that uh, really pained so many or made so many people angry is how victims were not treated well by the church when they came forward. This is years ago. It's different now. And then also situations years ago where bishops were negligent in protecting children and young people where they tried to cover it up or they transferred priests or whatever who had abused. Of course, sometimes they were just following the recommendations of psychologists who told them that they were all right to go back into ministry. We know now that was a big, big mistake. The other thing about the Pennsylvania report, the grand jury report, is it gets into graphic details Mm -hmm. of some of the abuse. And I could hardly read it. You know, it's horrific what some did. So we have to come to terms with this. And so I write about this in the, uh, in the pastoral letter. Also, the other thing that provoked the crisis was the case of Archbishop McCarrick. And we still don't know. I mean, the investigation has to take place about how he was able to, to move forward and become a cardinal and everything when he had this history of, of sexual misconduct. And yeah. So the questions of who knew about it and all that. So that was also deeply distress, distressing to us. So it is a time of trial. So I, I wanted to, I not only present those facts in my pastoral letter, but I invite the people to reflect on, meditate on these words of St. Paul to the Romans, where he wrote, let love be sincere, hate what is evil, hold on to what is good. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying to the people of our diocese, you know, love is our highest obligation. And the abuse of a minor is a terrible violation of love. You know, the priesthood is to be an office of love. Mm -hmm. Sexual abuse damages the soul. It's evil. So we should hate it. You know, hate what is evil, St. Paul says. We need to eradicate it. And, And by the way, not just in the church, but in society. Sure. You know, in the media, of course, the Catholic Church is the focus, but we know this is a, a widespread crime, you know, in other institutions as well. But then let's remember that other part of St. Paul's counsel. Hold on to what is good. There's so much good that our church does. Good that's often overshadowed by this evil of sexual abuse. So I want to encourage our people to keep doing good. Mm-hmm. Keep doing good as we seek to eradicate this evil. Our first obligation in this in this situation is to do good by helping victim survivors of abuse to heal. That has to be a high priority for the church, for for me, for our diocese. And actually we have we've really worked hard to help victim survivors. Mm -hmm. And actually, that's why I released the names of the clergy who abused minors, who were credibly accused of abusing minors a couple weeks ago. And I know it was a little controversial, but there's a growing number of dioceses that are releasing those names. We should have done it a lot sooner. Hmm. I wish I had. 
Why? Because it helps victims. When I've met with some victims, they would share with me that by having um, those names made public, it helps them to feel vindicated, mm-hmm. you know, that the church believes them. Mm-hmm. So that's why I released the names. And I was really assisted by our Diocesan Review Board, which is a, a great group of men and women who advise me on these matters. So really, I want to do all that's possible to bring the love of Christ, the love of the church to these victim survivors. And I'm really in the pastoral letter calling upon the people of our diocese to pray for these victims. There are brothers and sisters who've been harmed when they were children mm-hmm. or teenagers, and to also do penance. And I'll talk about that a little bit more. When we're looking at this, I think it's important, and I mentioned this in the letter, that since 2002, we have been doing uh, a lot. You know, since the sexual abuse crisis back in 2002, where the epicenter was Boston, the bishops of the United States adopted the charter for the protection of children and young people. And of course, that has instituted important uh, policies and procedures to keep children and young people safe. Mm -hmm. It outlines how we need to be transparent, how we need to remove priests even if there's just one case of abuse, zero tolerance, and encouraging us to help victims, et cetera. Well, since then, the number of abuse cases has dramatically declined. I think this people sometimes forget in the past few decades, there's been a big decline in the number of abuse cases. So it's working. Our youth protection efforts are working. We also have safe environment programs. We have over 17,000 people in our diocese whom we have done background criminal background checks on and given safe environment training to. Mm-hmm. So this is all really important. And we have to keep looking at our policies to see, okay, are they good enough? Do we need to make improvements? And that's what the Diocesan Review Board does. But I really would have to say, you know, we can't be satisfied until there are zero cases of abuse. Yeah. You know, I think in the report from last year, there were like 20 cases in the United States or 22. That's 22 too many. Yeah. I mean, we didn't have any in our diocese. But I also want to mention the importance also that we see in the charter. We report all credible allegations to law enforcement. Mm -hmm. I did that in the Diocese of Harrisburg. And as a bishop, I've always reported to law enforcement, but I've also always removed a priest. In my 13 years as, as bishop, there's been, once a priest is credibly accused, he's, he's removed from ministry. Mm-hmm. But I also want to mention in the pastoral letter how much I support the actions that have been taken by the administrative committee of the USCCB, where they're calling for a full investigation led by lay people mm-hmm. about what happened in that Archbishop McCarrick case. We deserve to know. And also, I support the action to establish a third-party reporting system to receive complaints of sexual abuse or sexual misconduct by bishops, because that was one of the things missing from the charter. It was about priests, not about bishops. And we know there have been some bishops who have been found credibly accused Mm -hmm. of sexual abuse or sexual misconduct. And then also a process to hold bishops accountable for negligence in dealing with cases of sexual abuse. And that's one thing that upset a lot of people when they read the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report because we read about bishops who were negligent. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, these were from 
from quite a few years ago. But we have to have some way to hold bishops accountable for negligence in this. Now, that was kind of, that's kind of the first half of, of my pastoral letter. It, it kind of looks at the situation. Yeah. But the second half is really an answer to a question that many of our lay people and priests have asked me. And they asked me, Bishop, what can we do yeah. about this? How can we help the church in this crisis, this time of shame and sorrow? So I basically say, well, support these actions of reform that I mentioned. But also, I think what's most important is that each of us recommit ourselves to holiness. You know, reform in the church, how does it happen? It's through holiness, Mm -hmm. through living holy lives. And that also includes prayer, prayer for the church, prayer for victim survivors, And it includes something that we might not be that thrilled to do, penance, Mm -hmm. reparation for the sins and crimes of those who've who've abused minors or for those who've been negligent in protecting minors or negligent in helping victims. Someone said to me, Bishop, but we didn't have anything to do with it. Why should I do penance? Well, it's part of our Catholic teaching, part of our Catholic tradition to do reparation, not only for our own sins, but for sins of others in the body of Christ. Think about Jesus. I mean, he was innocent, and he did reparation. I mean, he was innocent. He suffered for us, and he redeemed us. So when we do penance, when we make reparation, we're uniting our prayers and our sufferings with Jesus Mm -hmm. for others and for the church. And this was something Our Lady asked us to do at Fatima. And so did Jesus himself when he appeared to St. Margaret Mary, a sacred heart, and mm-hmm. revealed his sacred heart. What did he ask for? He asked for reparation to his sacred heart. And I also asked, mentioned in the pastoral letter something that maybe everyone doesn't want to hear, maybe difficult to hear. We're also called to pray for who, those who committed these sins and crimes. We should pray for them, for their repentance. Mm-hmm and their conversion, and their salvation. As a practical means, I designated this Friday, October 5th, which is the first Friday of the month, as a diocesan day of prayer and penance. Of course, you know the first Friday of the month is traditionally dedicated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And when I was praying, I kept thinking of the Sacred Heart. So I thought, oh, the Holy Spirit must be telling me to focus our diocesan day on his sacred heart. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to what I was mentioning earlier, our vocation to love. And, you know, we look at Christ's love. So I'm inviting all of our parishes, our schools and institutions to observe October 5th, this Friday, as a day devoted to the sacred heart of Jesus. And I asked all our priests to celebrate the Mass of the Sacred Heart this Friday. Okay. And inviting people to pray and to fast this Friday for the victim survivors of sexual abuse, to pray for their healing. And asking God's mercy on the church and for that grace of purification, that grace of renewal that we need. 
And then I give some practical suggestions. Besides special masses, I suggest, you know, they could do, it's not up to each parish, but I suggest holy hours. Perhaps during a holy hour, they can pray the seven penitential psalms. I suggest the way of the cross, the sorrowful mysteries of the Holy Rosary, Divine Mercy Chaplet. Those are just some suggestions, but I leave it to individual parishes. So I'm hoping that there's this great outpouring, this great cry to heaven, to God, to the sacred heart of Jesus, you know, which is the heart of perfect love. I can go on about the letter if you'd like. I, I, I move on to talking a little bit about how to stay, stay faithful mm-hmm. and remain Catholic in the midst of this. Because I think some people can really be so discouraged that they might think, oh, I'm not going to go to church anymore. I'm so ashamed. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I always say the core of our faith is not our church leaders. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if it was, you know, God help us. We've had times in the history of the church where we've had corrupt popes, corrupt bishops, corrupt priests. We don't place our hope, our, our trust in human beings. Mm-hmm. It's in Jesus Christ. He's the reason that we stay Catholic because he founded this church, a church of saints and sinners. And I recently read something by Bishop Robert Barron. He addressed this question of why remain Catholic. And he says the same thing. He says, yeah, we expect our our leaders to be morally excellent. We want our leaders to be holy, but, but we're not Catholic because of the moral excellence of our leaders. Yeah. And uh, Bishop Barron said, God help us if we were. As I mentioned, why are we Catholic? And let me quote Bishop Barron. I quote him in the, in the pastoral letter. This is what he said. We're Catholics because of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead. We're Catholics because of the Trinitarian love of God. We're Catholics because of the mystical body of Christ. We're Catholics because of the sacraments. We're Catholics, especially because of the Eucharist. We're Catholics because of the Blessed Mother. We're Catholics because of the saints. Even as leaders in the church fail morally, the Catholic Church remains the mystical body of Christ, the bride of Christ, and she's worth fighting for." End quote. Wow, I was really moved by that quote, by those words of Bishop Aaron. So I included those words in my pastoral letter. And getting back to the Sacred Heart, I was saying that, you know, how do we overcome evil in the church or outside the church? Well, St. Paul tells us, overcome evil with goodness. Evil is overcome by goodness and by love. And only love can triumph over the evils of our time. So that's why I want us to turn to the Sacred Heart of Jesus as a diocese for his merciful love upon us and upon his church, because that's what the Sacred Heart represents. It's a symbol of Christ's love, that love that conquers the devil, that love that's victorious over Satan and Satan's evil. Because I do believe And I know I've talked to a lot of people who agree with me that there's a diabolical element in this whole thing. I mean, what better way to bring down the church? Right. You know? So I've also asked all our parishes to pray the prayer of St. Michael at the end of Mass. A lot of parishes were doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, As I heard about it, I said, wow, what a great idea. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle, you know? 
uh, this battle against evil in the church and in society. So I'm encouraging parishes to pray that prayer at the end of Mass. And then, you know, I want to really emphasize hope in the midst of this crisis. You know, I always think of, of uh, well, actually two quotes of St. Paul. In his letter to the Romans, he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God that comes to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even something as terrible as this, nothing can separate us from his love. And then another quote of St. Paul to the Galatians, he says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Now we're in the midst of this crisis, but I think good can come from it. Grace. You know, we see this in the history of the church. In times of terrible crisis or corruption, we see great saints who arise and the church gets reformed. That's my hope from this, even in the midst of all the pain. I also invite our people to pray for our priests, who, who good and holy priests that we have who, who feel pain during this time, and also our, our, our seminarians, you know, who are pursuing the priesthood during this difficult time the priesthood that's been stained by the sins of some. They're faith-filled and courageous young men. So I invite everyone to join and make this coming Friday, October 5th, a day of prayer and penance. I'm so grateful to our people. They, I've gotten literally hundreds of cards and letters of prayer and loving support. And I, I thank our people for their perseverance and faith during this time for their commitment to Christ and to his church. I feel so grateful to be the bishop of Fort Wayne South Bend, and I just encourage people to continue to bear witness of their faith and, and, and their love and to be committed to overcoming evil with good. I finished the uh, pastoral letter, the very end of it, I quote Cardinal Ratzinger, shortly before he became Pope Benedict, he uh, wrote the meditations and gave the meditations at the Way of the Cross at the Colosseum on Good Friday back in 2005, and he, he said this prayer, and it's the prayer that I end the letter with. Through your passion, crucifixion, death, and resurrection, Jesus, you have brought us the gift of forgiveness of sins. Cleanse and purify the church you love of the sins of abuse and misconduct which have seriously wounded the church. Bring healing and love to victims. Help us all to rededicate ourselves to the pursuit of true holiness. Amen. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. If you haven't read the letter, the pastoral letter. You can find that on the diocesan website. And a reminder that this is this Friday, an opportunity to have a day of prayer and penance. Also, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to redeemerradio.com slash askbishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, here with our bishop. We are fresh off of... Uh, 
there's constantly feast days going on, but Monday was a big one. We have two of our parishes in the diocese named after St. Therese of Lisieux. She Her feast day was October 1st, which is Monday. Now, I, I think one of the parishes calls their St. Therese, and one calls it St. Therese. That's right. Um, in Fort Wayne, they call her St. Therese. Uh-huh. And in South Bend, the parish is called St. Therese, the Little Flower. Mm-hmm. Also known as St. Therese of Lisieux. That's so right, because that's the town she's from. Lots of names. France. She's right. Yes, and I guess her, her actual full name is St. Therese of the Child Jesus and the Holy Face. Okay. As a matter of fact, I think on the liturgical calendar, it says St. Therese of the Child Jesus. Okay. What is it about her and uh, the Child Jesus and childlike faith and little way and all little flower it seems like everything's small around her uh, i know and it's so beautiful her spiritual life her spiritual writings are so popular with people and the little way of saint therese it's really her understanding of being a disciple of jesus seeking to be holy in the ordinary events of everyday life mm-hmm. She really had this incredible conviction that God shows love by mercy and forgiveness. And, and that's a fundamental conviction for her, is, is the love of God. Because she thought, she believed that a lot of people, and I think this is true not only in her time, but our time, lived in too great a fear of God's judgment. Hmm. So their relationship with God, and this can happen to us, was more one of having fear, and uh, and it was stifling. Um, and she wanted people to experience his love and the freedom that comes, the freedom of the children of God. Because she knew from Scripture that God is merciful love. And she loved all those images in Scripture for God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, which spoke of his mercy and his love. So she would she wrote, for example, that she couldn't understand how anyone could be afraid of a God who became a child, hmm. you know? And she knew that she'd never be perfect, but she always had this profound trust, this confidence in the love of God in Christ. So she would go to God in her prayer and otherwise as a child approaches a parent with open arms. So this is the little way. And then it means she knew she couldn't be perfect in following the Lord, but she just trusted in his love. And that's how she went about then with her everyday tasks, her assignments in the convent. You know, she was a Carmelite nun. She was a sacristan. She took care of the altar and the chapel. She served in the dining room, the laundry room. But in all those simple tasks, she tried to show love for all the nuns in the community. And, and she was especially gave herself to those who were difficult, who had difficult personalities. Uh-huh. You can read about that. So it was a very routine life. It was a very ordinary life. But it was an amazing life because it, it was this simple, really direct living her faith with this conviction of this immense, infinite love of God for her and for all of us. And... and um, she sensed that everything she was able to accomplish came from a generous love of God in her life, that it was all His grace. You know, before she died, she was convinced that she would go to God with empty hands. 
because everything she did was a result of God's grace. It was accomplished uh, in union with God. So even non-Catholics, by the way, other Christians have been attracted to, to St. Therese's spirituality, her little way, because she puts holiness within the reach of ordinary people. You know, mm. instead of just thinking, well, holiness is for priests or for nuns. No, it's for everybody. It means living every day with confidence in God's love for us. And so therefore, we don't just dwell on our sins and become depressed because of that. No, we, our sins get burned. I think she used this image, get burned in the fire of God's love. <laughs> and when we think that way, we're kind of free, you know? So what a difference um, this can make in our lives. So I would, you know, recommend people reading about St. Therese and she was, uh, you know, just a young woman, died at the age of 24, but yet she's uh, a great saint. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting if you look at the gospels for the masses that we've had lately on Monday on her feast day, we had Luke chapter nine it says for the one who is least among you is the one who is greatest. And then yesterday, Tuesday, the gospel was from Matthew chapter 18 said, amen, amen. I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven and talks about being humble like a child. And then coming up on this Sunday, the gospel is Mark chapter 10, let the children come to me. Do not prevent them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Is this actually intentional that the, the scriptures line up with her feast day like this? Or is I don't it, know. I think it's coincidence, Yeah, but it's perfect because uh, of her childlike trust in God. And that's really important. I mean, we see these different passages with the words of Jesus about this in, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, I think it's good for us to reflect on what does it mean to be childlike? Because Jesus insists on this. He's not, and of course, it's always good to distinguish between being childish right. and being childlike because we're not called to be childish because childish isn't good, you know, because children can sometimes be self-centered and, mm -hmm. you know, greedy and make themselves the center of the world. Uh, you know, kids who don't want to share things or whatever. <laughs> That's a vice. So, so that's those are unattractive things about children, you know. And parents would know that. Yeah. <laughs> so we're not talking about childishness. We're talking about being childlike, and that's so beautiful. It means, you know, think of a child how they they trust in those around them. They trust in their parents. You know, they trust in their older brothers and sisters. So they teach us we are to trust in our heavenly Father. Mm -hmm to be childlike in our relationship with God. And look how children have that ability to show affection. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that's also very important, how they get surprised and happy about simple things. And I think these are all things that are, we see in the life of St. Therese, who look forward to being with Jesus in the kingdom of heaven. So I think... Um, those are good passages of the scriptures for us to reflect on, especially that humility and innocence and trust, and I'd say also joy of a child. Yeah, and speaking of youth and being a child, she only lived to be 24, and yet she's a doctor of the church. 
I guess, what does it take to be a doctor of the church and what qualifies her for that? Yeah, you know, I think there was a lot of surprise when St. John Paul II named her a doctor of the church because doctors of the church are saints who were great scholars. Mm-hmm. And when you think of St. Therese, you might not think of her at first as this, you know, you don't think of her like St. Thomas Aquinas or uh, one of the other great doctors of the church, like yeah. St. Teresa of Avila who had such beautiful and deep theological works and spiritual uh-huh. classics. And, and St. Therese of Lisieux, St. Therese of the Child Jesus, she's the youngest of the doctors of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's her spiritual journey that is so amazing and so rich in theology, really, and spirituality. She had so such insights of faith and such spiritual maturity and the profundity, how profound her writings are, that she really is a great spiritual master and deserves that title, Mm -hmm. Doctor of the Church. She is also the patron saint of missionaries, but as far as I know, she wasn't a missionary herself, as far as what we would typically think of being a missionary at least. Right, we have co-patron saints of the, of, of the missions, of missionaries. Saint Francis Xavier, of course, and of course we know he was a, a great missionary in India and in um, the Far East, Japan, etc. But, you know, Saint Therese, a Carmelite cloistered nun, she wasn't a missionary. But when you read her writings, she would speak about having the vocation of the apostles, kind of a missionary vocation. She would write that she would like to travel over the whole earth to preach God's name, to preach the gospel. She even said she wanted to go to all five continents to preach the gospel Uh and remote islands and everything. She said that uh, she'd like to be a missionary from the beginning of creation until the end of the world. So when you think about that, that's what she is in heaven. She prays for missionaries. I think that's why she's the patron saint of the missions and of of missionaries. Have you ever been to Lisieux? I was when I was a seminarian. I got huh. to visit there, and it was great. And and you know her her parents are also saints. So reading about her life and her family life and her parents is uh, a great experience. So so to go there and pray at her 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 tomb, etc. was very special. I remember we took a train from Paris. I, I don't, I mean, it's many years ago. It wasn't that far from what I remember, maybe an hour or two. But um, yeah, that's the place I'd love to, to go back to. All right. Well, coming up, we have a question about the Franciscan Friars and St. Andrew's Church being torn down and more coming up here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, asking the questions that you have submitted to us. One of the questions, at one time there were over 50 Franciscan friars in the Fort Wayne area. Why have they disbanded with the majority going back to their hometowns? Is there any truth to the rumor that the old St. Andrew's Church will be torn down? Will the cloistered order of poor Clares remain? Wow, that's a lot of questions. Yeah. Um, First of all, I think it's good for people to know that our Franciscan Friars Minor were not yet a religious institute. They are a public association. They're an association of the faithful, a group of mostly young men, some older, 
trying to pursue um, a Franciscan vocation mm -hmm. with kind of a unique charism, a more primitive observance of the rule of St. Francis. Well, if you studied the beginning of religious orders or religious institutes in the church, there's often some difficulty, some challenges. So mm -hmm. we've had our challenges just in trying to find an identity, to develop how they're going to live the life, issues about leadership, et cetera, mm -hmm. governance. So through these years, we've had so many good, good men who've felt called to a Franciscan vocation. And what we found is, you know, it was, it's been a time of discernment for them. And many freely have discerned that out of, uh, of the community, mm -hmm. others have decided to remain in the community. And it's important, you know, they have to be free, extremely important. And there's been some disagreement about uh, how to live the life. We call it the constitutions of, of the community. So, so some of the brothers who didn't agree with the, uh, uh, the constitutions, of course, discern to, to go elsewhere, which is fine. And, and just to know, they still exist. We still have our Franciscan Friars Minor, but there are fewer. It's probably about a dozen. Okay. We have two houses. One house is in Cincinnati because they're, they're, even though they're still connected to our diocese, they're studying in the seminary there. Okay. And they're very happy. And then we have a commu uh, community of, of friars down in Decatur, and they're living more of a, uh, what we call a, uh, in, at a hermitage. So most of their life is a a life of prayer and not so much an active apostolate. But really, when you read of religious communities in the history of the church, there's often uh, these challenges when they're getting started. So perhaps we shouldn't be so surprised, but pray for them. Mm -hmm. um, St. Francis of Assisi, a great saint, uh, his feast day is, is tomorrow. So we pray through his intercession for our Franciscan friars. Regarding the rumor that the old St. Andrew's Church will be torn down, Yes, um, we're probably going to have to have it demolished because it needs significant repairs and there's some safety issues. Mm -hmm. And the estimates that we've gotten are really high. I'm talking a couple million dollars. Oh, wow. So we just can't afford that. So we're going to have to uh, have it demolished. Regarding the poor sisters of St. Clair, they're doing well. Our cloistered community of sisters, yes, they're, they're remaining. We'll have to see about their, where they're, if we're going to stay in that same convent or perhaps move to the other building on the property. We're still looking at that um, to see what would be best because right now they're connected to the church, the church that's going to be torn down. So, mm -hmm. so either house they're at, they're going to need a chapel where they would have daily mass, et cetera. So that we're still studying. Are there any dates for these? changes? No, I think we, it's been a continual study. So I'm expecting in the coming months, but yeah, no, no firm date yet. All right. Cecilia Hess asked, what do you think about the fact that most religious catalogs and Catholic bookstores are full of goods from China? It bothers me because of the human rights problems China has. Shouldn't we try to create and source these precious things in the USA or at least in quote, holier unquote, countries? That is a very difficult question to answer. And I think a moral theologian would be better <laughs> for you to ask that question. Okay. I mean, a lot of things I see are made in China. Mm -hmm. And we know of various problems where there might be sweatshops, child labor, unjust salaries, problems with ecology and the environment, mm -hmm. some of these factories. I mean, there's a lot of things. So the question is, should we 
boycott, you know? And I think there are some, especially considering social justice, who think, yeah, we shouldn't buy goods from China. And there are other people, because it might be a way to get them to change. Right. I'm not sure it would, but, uh, you know, uh, maybe. Would we maybe be hurting people by Chinese people if we uh, didn't buy? Because it's not their fault, the workers' fault. On the other hand, I think we need to be vocal about the abuses. Mm -hmm. And I really don't know what the best way is. I, I really don't know if not buying or buying is, is better. I will say, honestly, I try to buy fair trade. Mm -hmm. I try to buy items if possible. And CRS you know, has this whole part of fair trade, like fair trade coffee and right. other goods, fair, fair trade chocolate we sell in our bookstore here. Uh -huh. Because then you know you're supporting those who are following, you know, are just their workers and are not harming the environment. For example, religious goods from the Holy Land, right. you know, they're great to sell because we have a lot of, of fair trade where we know that it's helping the Christian communities in Bethlehem and in, in Palestine. So anyhow, I don't want to give a yes or no answer to that because I think the question, I know good people who argue on both sides of that issue, whether to buy or not to buy goods from China. So there might be someone who, who would have a better answer than I do to that question. It also gets to the issue of cooperation and evil. Of course, this would be pretty remote material cooperation. I mean, if, if one was buying it because one agreed with their oppression of workers, that would obviously be sinful. You know, we can't intend to support evil. Mm -hmm. um, but buying a, an article of clothing or a religious item would be very remote material cooperation and evil. It might not even be the case that unfair labor was involved. I mean, there could be factories in China which aren't inhumane. Sure. You know? So it's a difficult question. And um, again, it's something that you might want to ask a, someone who's, who studied this issue a little bit more from the moral point of view. All right. Well, thank you for that question and your response, Bishop. You can ask your questions by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. Coming up, we have more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman asking the questions that you've submitted. Chris Watkins from St. Dominic Parish in Bremen said, Bishop Rhodes, I was recently with you on the Heritage Pilgrimage exploring our diocesan roots in Kentucky and southern Indiana. All on the trip knew that the cause for canonization of Bishop Brute is near to your heart. And for this reason, it was very moving to watch you pray at his tomb. I was going to ask you at the time what sparked your devotion to him, but then thought, nah, I'm going to save that question for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, Bishop Simon Gabriel Brute, ever since I came to Indiana, you know, I, I've had a special devotion to him. The reason is he came here, the first bishop of the Diocese of Vincennes, which was the whole state of Indiana and, and the eastern third of the state of Illinois. He came here from Mount St. Mary's in Emmitsburg, Maryland. So I felt that connection because I came here from Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland, although via Harrisburg, uh -huh. you know, five years in between. But I just thought, wow, this is neat, going to Indiana, where Bishop Brute served as the first bishop. And he was such a holy man. I mean, we had devotion to him at Mount St. Mary's. He was the spiritual director, by the way, of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, 
So if he was the spiritual director of a saint, you know he must right. have been a saint too. <laughs> but he was kind of like a co-founder of Mount St. Mary's. Uh, the principal founder was another French priest who immigrated during the French Revolution. That was Bishop John Dubois, who became the third bishop of New York. But really, his right-hand man was Bishop Brute. And Bishop Dubois was known more as like the builder. And Bishop Brute was known more as the, the, uh, the more saintly spiritual one, although I think Bishop Dubois was spiritual too. But certainly Bishop Rute, he was extremely intelligent. I think um, just a very, very holy man. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop, for another great episode of Truth and Charity. Also, thanks to all of those that supported Redeemer Radio through the share If you miss your opportunity, you can still go to RedeemerRadio.com and donate. We'd appreciate your support. And before we go, Bishop, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.